Hi, I'm Peter Jukes of Untold, the Daniel Morgan Murder, and I'm this week's guest on Metaphor. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them. Hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Greetings, everyone. I'm Wendy Morrill, and a very warm welcome to Metapod. Indeed. Welcome back, listeners. For those of you in the US of A, we hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And for everyone else, we hope you enjoyed listening to our episode with Jean and Jeff of the Lazarus Heist. Yeah, we got some really good feedback about that episode. So thank you to those who spent the time to send us a message or post something nice on social media. Yes, thank you. Anyway, if you're not inclined to send us a message, just give us a review wherever you listen to your Metapod episodes. Don't we do this part at the end normally, Kev? We do, Wendy. But hey, let's Mm. see if anyone actually notices, okay? Well, you might be surprised, but let's get on with it. We've actually got quite a few details to go through ahead of this week's interview. Indeed we do, Wendy. So, okay, Untold, the Daniel Morgan murder is a 22-episode podcast hosted by Peter Jukes and Divya Meyer, which first aired in May 2016 and eventually wrapped after a break between the two seasons in October 2018. It tells the story of the brutal killing in a London pub car park of a private investigator, that's Daniel, and the complex connections to organised crime, the UK government, the police and the media, namely the Rupert Murdoch empire. Peter is a screenwriter and now the co-founder and executive editor of the excellent Byline Times, which is a UK-based newspaper and website. It would be an understatement to say this is one tangled web of a story. It's got an entire cast of characters, plot twists, shady meetings, and some extremely dodgy and disturbing relationships between police officers, politicians, journalists, the suspects, and many others. Yeah, that's right. A number of official investigations have looked into the case, and yet the killer, or killers, have never been brought to justice. With each of the passing years that have gone by since 1987, only reinforcing Daniel's family and others to believe cover-ups have taken place. And, as Peter describes it, the immediate criminal nexus has ensured the tangled web remains pretty much intact. We thought it would be useful before we start the tape to give what I guess you could say is a mini glossary, since we discuss a few things in the interview that might not be so well known to those hearing the story for the first time. Yeah, okay, so here we go. Daniel Morgan is the victim. He was a private detective at a company called Southern Investigations in South London, where he worked alongside a chap called Jonathan Rees, who later became a suspect in Daniel's murder. You'll hear the name Alistair a few times. That's Daniel Morgan's brother. Alistair wrote a book with Peter Jukes and appears frequently on the Untold podcast. He's probably the most well-known figure in the campaign for justice over the three decades. Yeah, the phrase the panel report is an important part in all this, especially this year. After numerous inquiries, which found nothing untoward going on, nor identified the killer, an independent report into Daniel's murder was started in 2014. It was eventually published in June 2021, that's this year, and the headline finding was that the Metropolitan Police, that's London's police force, by the way, was, I quote, institutionally corrupt. Other names that come up are Sid Fillery, a police officer turned private detective who was one of the first to be involved in the case, but lo and behold, not long thereafter, ended up working at Southern Investigations with that chap that Kev just mentioned, Jonathan Rees. Yep, there's also Gordon Brown, he's the former British Prime Minister. Oh, and David Cameron, who is another former British Prime Minister. Andy Coulson, he was a journalist at the News of the World, a popular Murdoch-owned British tabloid newspaper. Andy Coulson was up to his neck in dealings with the police and private investigators. And what do you know, just happened to find himself a job at David Cameron's head of communications. Yeah, it's all pretty wild. 
Yeah, and I guess the last noteworthy item, again, that you'll hear quite a lot is the Leveson inquiry, which was a 2012 public inquiry into phone hacking, press culture and ethics, in particular the British tabloid newspapers and specifically the news of the world. All right, that's probably enough for now. The full cast of characters, and these are real people, not fictional characters, is available on untoldmurder.com which, if you listen to the full Untold podcast, becomes a very handy resource for following the story. We deliberately didn't go into many of the numerous and finer details in the case during the interview, frankly, as we couldn't do it justice in the limited time that we had. Instead, we've tackled with Peter some of the big issues that surround this case and what it all means. Okay, I think we should start the tape, Mr. May. Uh, Peter Jiggs, uh, the host of Untold, the Daniel Morgan Murder podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, our guest on the Metapod this week. Really appreciate your time. Great to be here. At the beginning of every episode, there is the voiceover that says, if you haven't heard this story, ask yourself why. Do you think the why is because the media up until very recently has been reluctant to discuss this case? Or is it perhaps sadly some kind of malaise from the public about these types of uh, injustices and cases, or is it something else? No, I think the profound reason you've alerted to uh, is the media. Uh, and actually we stole that um, tagline, ask yourself why, uh, from somebody on Twitter who who just mentioned it when we were sort of publicizing the crowdfunding. No, this is one of those stories. It's hard to think of many like this, except for the fictional equivalent of maybe LA Confidential, which involves police corruption and the media with that hush-hush newspapers. Anybody has you know, seen the film or read the novel, where the media is at the heart of the problem. I mean, uh, Gordon Brown, when it began to came out after the phone hacking scandals, the role of this you know, corrupt investigations agency, Southern Investigation, in personal intrusion, in sort of dragging Fleet Street very down market beyond the gutter into the bin into criminality, described it as a criminal media nexus. And I think that's what makes it not unique, but very special in terms of injustice, um, in terms of police corruption or unresolved murders, this central role of the media. And just to be clear to people, I mean, uh, one of the major motives, and, and you know, the panel has not said why they thought the panel, independent panel report, which reported two months ago, has not come to a conclusion why Daniel was murdered. But if you talk to his relatives, his brother Alistair, you talk to people who knew him, you talk to people around the time, the most likely reason is that he was selling a story of police corruption to the press. This story never saw the light of day. It was a major story. Uh, Daniel was very wide about it. Mm -hmm. There were large figures involved. There were other, uh, many other people around him, five or six saying that was the main thing on his mind. The story was never told. Instead, the prime suspects for the murder, i.e. at that time, disaffected partner, Jonathan Reese, and the police officer who partially investigated the murder who then took Daniel's place former DS Sydney Fillory, went on after Daniel's death to become the kind of one-stop shop for the dark arts of the press. I mean, they, by 1990, they were already doing computer hacking. They were already, you know, allegedly commissioning burglaries, getting involved in bugging the minister, David Meller, who said that the press were drinking in the last chance saloon. They end up bugging an apartment nearby. So just to nail it on the head, for 20 years after Daniel's murder, some investigations, that group of private detectives and their police connections were the main source of illicit, unlawfully gained material, mainly for the tabloid press. Do you think there is an overriding feeling that your listeners have when they are at the end of the podcast because I imagine their overriding feelings are different as they go through episode by episode but at the end do you think it's anger dismay a fire in their belly to kind of change things or is again is it something else my goodness very very good question I it's a mixture of emotions I mean there's a very negative emotion I mean it shocked me going on that journey of making that podcast with Alice I knew things could be dark I didn't think that they could be this dark I certainly didn't think that that, in a way, the antidote to police corruption, which is a you know a good press, exposes wrongdoing, could be so compromised and carry on. 
yeah. being so compromised. And it go up that compromise, really up the chain of command, up to people like Rebecca Brooks, you know, Andy Coulson, who hired Jonathan Reese after being in prison for five years for promoting the course of justice, who then became, you know, David Cameron's press secretary, went up the chain and Rupert Murdoch. And so what happens is that they compromise the cover up and the conspiracy widens, the corruption widens. And, and in that way, apart from despair, anger, frustration, and, you know, in a way, despair, you also get this dark enlightenment. It's probably best to know things are bad than to be thought think they're good when they're not. And I mm -hmm. think that in all true crime, I'm sure you know better than I do, you know, it's better, I'd wear you know, the blue pill, the red pill. But I think there is then the final positive outcome, which I think is very much emphasized by the panel report. It worked 34 years later. Yeah. The family, through all being ignored for, you know, rubbish, you know, you know, really dismissed by the police uh, and then dismissed by the press, ignored 34 years later. They got a major panel report lodged in Parliament, which said, you know, the Met are institutionally corrupt. And that was a big moment and is a tribute to them and also for anybody who faces injustice, a salutary lesson that persistence, perseverance will get a result in the end. As their solicitor, uh, Raju Bhatt, amazing guy who has guided the family since 1998, I think, says you won't get justice. Don't expect justice, out, but you will get something. And I think transparency, truth, telling their story, being heard, finally being listened to by authorities is worth something in itself. And maybe the listeners to the podcast will feel that too. I think it'd be useful for our listeners to just get a little bit of sense about you as a the host and mm. now, now what you do because it's quite a leap from being I think you were a screenwriter you were involved on the creative side of producing content for one of a better phrase but yeah. you've now almost become and correct me if you think I'm coming at this the wrong way almost part of the campaign team through the work that you've done with the podcast would that be fair second part of the question but the first question is how did you get to this how do you go from being a screenwriter to taking on board this kind of project yeah i mean you know kevin it you know i did i you know started as a dramatist in theater fringe theater a bit of west end uh, and then a lot of tv and a lot of that tv a lot with doc shows a lot with cop shows so i got yeah. to know the whole undercover series, the whole series about chief constables, a lot of police officers, people who are interested in crime, they're interested in the police, they're interested in crime. What I loved about being a screenwriter was the journalistic research side, talking to people, getting out on the street, going on the beat. So I was always primed to be a bit of a journalist. I, you know, foreign conflicts of Bosnia and places like that, I was always interested in real life stuff. So in that way, becoming a journalist as I did, mainly through the phone hacking scandal, Levison and the trial, and in that process meeting Alistair, it was uh, pushing my storytelling abilities, I think, into the realm of telling very complicated stories emotionally. And so, sorry, back to your first question. It is about, you know, why is this a difficult story to tell? Yes, of course, because the press hit it. It's also incredibly complicated. And one yeah. of the things when I talked to Alistair about it, it's a storm in where with two hours have gone in telling the stories, we've got to 1988. You know? <laughs> and, and, and one of the... The talents I thought I could bring to his storytelling, the family story, was, okay, I'm a dramatist, I've written long series TV. How do you structure this as a 10-part box set? Which, of course, I did for the first podcast. Uh, and I think, you know, journalism isn't about storytelling insofar as you're not making stuff up. The thing is, why am I making up fixed, too many true life stories that haven't been told? I'm usually borrowing bits of them anyway. Why not tell a true life story? One of the good reasons is you get your ass sick and people are really horrible to you. I've loved the work I've done for Malice. He's become a close friend. I wouldn't say I'm part of his campaign. I mean, my my job is not to push for public policy, and I sort of disagree with some of the panel's findings. My job is to tell it how it is, and that is a slightly different remit. So I hope that answers the question. Obviously, when you get close to somebody, you become part, in a way, of their story. But I'm very aware it's his i am a narrator i appear in the panel report annoyingly but you know in a minor way i don't want to obtrude and through the complexities of that 30-year story i think you know, alistair Castine, his sister these become kind of guiding lights to the underworld that even if you don't understand everything that's going on you kind of fix on them in their journey 
Peter, what would you say are the disadvantages to utilizing drama to convey some of the fairly serious issues in this case? Oh, I think they're huge. Um, that's why we didn't. Because as we've seen, there was a Channel 4 series which did some reconstruction. Yeah. And they reconstructed even some of Jonathan Reese, the prime suspect. He narrated, he was to, went to see Iris Daniels' widow the night of the murder. And he said she reacted, oh, I told them not to do that. Whole set of lies which were then, they filmed those lies, and then they showed the real account by the police officers there. They filmed the lies. It's very, very dangerous to film lies. I don't think drama helps make something more real. What it does do, what it's brilliant at working out, is gets a sense of character, ethos, and it can, as great thrillers do, from Chinatown to LA Confidential, you can get the sense of connection without the ethos of a place, the smell of a rotten city of Gabriel Gatia Marquez, you can still tell the state of a city from the smell of one rotten guava, that you can feel what it's like to be there, to be that person going through that journey. But evidentially, it's useless. Evidentially, it kind of queers the pitch. You know, and every case, and we've seen this with tabloid cases, where the Amanda Knox stuff in Italy, or the other famous, Millie Dowler, famously news of the world, the fictionalization by the press of a story, a true crime drama, uh, I think disrupts the process of justice. So you've written a book with Alistair Morgan, and uh, the second season of the podcast is drawing largely on the book and some new revelations that you have there. How did you imagine the podcast and the book working together for readers or listeners? You see, we started a podcast without knowing there's going to be a book. So that was just there and then got people want to do the book. We had like 20 of 20, 30 offers every day and eventually went with Blink. And I realized that Alistair already, you know, years before began to sketch out his story. With the book, there is, especially my house, which all the factual styles looking at hundreds of thousands of documents. There's much more information. I mean, like you know, 10, 20 times the number of facts. Whether there's the same emotional information, I don't know. Uh, with the second one, I think we thought the revelations of the book would become the main part of the podcast. And then realized people didn't really want that. It's a different audience for a book and a podcast. So we moved towards relating stories like Jonathan Alford or the story of Ian Hurst and what happened in Northern Ireland or more on Dave Cook. In a way, we branched out to other areas which weren't so linearly encompassed in the book. So it was an experiment there, it didn't really, they don't, I think they're different things. Obviously this is a case where things have gone very wrong. Do listeners want to hear a story where things went right? <laughs> well, that's a very, very good question. I mean, but if you look at the origins of drama, just as I, I do, like, I like so hot, I like Walking Dead, I like stupid zombie movies. You know? I like to be scared. <laughs> I like to, I like thrillers like Chinatown, dark noir. Jake Arnott, my co-writer, is very good on this. He says the problem with that I wrote because I, I adapted some of the actually I recreated news stories for the Inspector Lindley mysteries, but the mystery idea is you solve it at the end, right? It's like the Christie. Ah, that's it. This person did it in the you know, library with a candlestick. But more importantly, and I think Agatha is quite good. This psychological motivation. This went wrong in their childhood, bang, bang. And it's kind of empirical British optimism that you could fix it. I mean, only after somebody's died. Noir has a very different tradition as, you know, best evidence by Dashiell Hammett, or particularly somewhere like Chinatown, where, you know, the hero doesn't get the girl. She, I won't give away any spoilers. And then Jake, the, you know, played by Jack Nicholson, is dragged away from his dead hero saying, it's Chinatown. It's a mess. It's a tragic mess. I'll never get to the bottom bit. And there's a great line by John Donne, who speaks of the poet, a grief brought to numbers cannot be so fierce, for he tames it, who fetters it in verse. And I think some of the darkest emotions with psycho, you know, a psycho killer, I watched that game recently, and Auntie Perkins is amazing in it, right? is that we want to capture and see the darkest parts of the human soul recollections in tranquility from a safe space. A child wants to hear scary stories of giants told by a giant who happens to be his parents. There is this urge in storytelling, you know, Odysseus, the 
Gilead, Dante's Inferno, the, of dark stories, things going wrong, told by the winter fire in a safe circumstance. And the, the our way of incorporating the darkness, so learning from errors, facing our biggest fear, but in a fictional or safe setting, I think is more aesthetically pleasing than happy stories. You know? Right. And that's why tragedy is the great art and comedy isn't. There are any particular part of the whole Daniel Morgan case and saga and everything else that scares you zombie film like than any other part? Oh, yes, there is one which is quite clear to me now. What happened to Alistair was scary. But what happened to Dave Cook, DCS yeah. Chief Chief Incendent, Dave Cook, who was the only detective they ever trusted, who uh, was really chilly. And he has become the full guy, the not corrupt cop yeah. for the corruption of the force going back to 1987, of course, beyond, because all this relates actually to Brinks Matt, to a whole set of corruption, Operation Countryman that was going on years before Daniel was murdered. And he's become even the panel report, the full guy, strung up by the Met, I believe, my personal opinion. Without him, and I argued with Baroness Sloan about that, she said, oh, what he did was awful, you know, leaking. You know, stuff to journalists. I was one of the journalists, many, several journalists, he leaked stuff to after he left the police, after the trial had collapsed. And without him, wouldn't, I'm convinced, have had the phone hacking scandal, wouldn't have had Leveson. Now, since then, he's been subject, I forget the number, five different investigations, which means he hasn't been able to talk for nine years. But the fact that he has ended up taking a lot of the blame for those 34 is just, you know, chilling and abhorrent. It's interesting that you mentioned Dave Cook because one of my next question, uh, Peter, was, you know, other than the family, probably PC Jackie Hames and mm. David Cook, her husband, does anyone else come out of this story in a positive light other than those kind of characters? Well, the, the crime journalist Duncan Campbell, you know. Yes, yeah, so I mean, that, as in the protagonist. I mean, there's the journalists who've been doing all the investigating who yeah, do. Yeah, there were good journalists and bad journalists. I say most journalists Yeah, come that's out the bad. thing I was getting uh, to. Yeah. Piers Morgan doesn't come out well, but Beckham Brooks, Andy Coulson. Um, You mean close to the family? And, yeah, I, I, oh, good question. There, I mean, as I said, I think, you know, the the heroism of Raju Bhatt, and Bat Murphy, their solicitor, his careful guidance. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to think, you know, the family come out well. You know, they're all flawed human beings, but the indomitable pressure of uh, Daniel Nanister's mother, Isabel, she sadly died before the panel report. The panel report started in 2013, was due out by 2015. Isabel died in 2017 without seeing it. It took another four years to come out. Uh, and that is does not speak well of the Met, who were, according to Baroness alone, authored the report, mainly responsible for slowing it down. She said the corruption was on ongoing. Uh, it's difficult to think of who comes out of it well. Said the family, a few helpers on the line. I always thought of it like a epic struggle that, you know, you're basically up against huge adversity. You're like a hobbit going to Mordor, you know, and like that famous Sean Bean, you don't just walk into Mordor. Troll, there's flaming fire, and there's the ever watchful eye of Sauron. But somehow, this Welsh family, you know, stumbled into this horror, kept going for 34 years, and felt found helpers along the way. You know, key journalists, you know, key members of the police, key politicians, members of the London Assembly, then lawyers. I hope towards the end did my own little bit. What comes out worse is not individuals, by the way. I think it's institution. Institution of the press, the way it covers up its own criminality is sort of predicated on power rather than informing the public, monstering minorities and individuals. The Met, which, you know, I've had some mixed feelings about until this, but obviously recent stuff around Sarah Everard, is that it's institutionally not fit for purpose. It and Alistair described it vividly, the Met is a hangover from imperial policing. We're subjects, we should. We don't need to know. We're doing it for the greater good. Clearly, just going back to the crime, because I know whatever Daniel triggered, whatever he was about to reveal, and we have some ideas about it, was so big and so dangerous that the state decided to cover it up. Some people have theories, the security service are involved, I don't know. We certainly know the allegations of corruption at the time would have actually undermined hundreds of trials. And a lot of people were in prison 
would have been probably justifiably so, by the way, would have been released because of the uh, insecurity around the evidence, around their convictions. So this is something too big for the British state to reveal, something that the Met's still trying to cover up. And I think that speaks something bigger than rotten apples. Yeah. I, you know, uh, it speaks to me about a diseased tree. And two final questions, really, before we move on to some kind of, you know, what does this all mean kind of section of our interview? Did you ever feel unsafe or unsettled during the course of your investigating and production of the podcast? I know you reference something in the second season where you felt maybe you were being followed or something. Were there other occasions where you just felt, hang on a second, I really don't feel particularly happy about my circumstances or whatever? Um I never felt unsafe. I mean, I know journalists, especially Mike Gillard and Laurie Friend, who, which was about including the Daniel Morgan murder, but a lot of other police corruption, especially in North London, related to the Adams family, were told that you know don't go to the front of tube, you know, on the platform when a tube chain's coming, somebody might push you in. Uh, and Alistair, though he did get threats in the early days, strange phone calls, you know, Glenn Vian, the presumed axeman who's now dead, so you can see me. But anyway, everybody, you know, if you look at who who they thought did it, it's pretty much the same suspects for 21 years. But he threatened to bash Alistair, Alistair's lights in. Never did it because that would have brought a whole heap of trouble on the suspects and those around them. So I never felt physically unsafe. I had definite several hacking attempts. One, I'm pretty sure company I contacted who then came back into my email and deleted the email I sent them uh, and their reply um, were well did not deny being connected to my second sky bid and uh, or his lawyers I've had horrible things sent to me by the murder suspects Jonathan, like that. but I don't think they were ever in danger of my life I think the reputational attacks on me and byline um, were quite heavy, usually from other parts yeah. of the industry, especially over things around John Whittingdale and, and some stuff about Russian interference. And actually, the times when they were going to investigate me in 2016, it's just with a recent podcast about our revelations on Barline about John Whittingdale and four stories about his domination hadn't been published in the press. And then he changed his ideas of press regulation, which was a conflict of interest. They kind of backed down, I said, because uh, they were asking questions about me. I knew the journalists. Sunday Times. And I said, you're doing this because Daniel Morgan murdered me kind of back down. So in a way, I was saying this to Alistair, he's got this sort of sense of light about him and he's so durable and resilient. To a certain extent, I felt protected by him. That's interesting. And lastly on this then, what do you think, it's an overused word, Peter, but you know, what would you think would bring closure to the family now, the most important people in this story? Would it be a conviction for the murderer and the accomplices or do you think it would be some kind of wholesale change of culture is that what they are is that the minimum perhaps now that they seek absolutely i mean even in 2008 when there were five six arrests this is in the uh fifth murder inquiry operation Alistair was fairly wary about the Met getting involved again. Because what happens when you have an investigation, it all goes silent, right? It all goes silent for like five years. Uh, and then you have the court process. You can't comment it, nothing can happen. And what happened with that case, they were arrested. I didn't really knew they were going to arrest them until, you know, Abelard II began probably about 2004. Four years later, they get the arrest on various charges, by the way. Uh, the VM brothers, brothers and ex-brothers of Jonathan Reese, Jonathan Reese. Uh, Daniel's former colleague in Southern Investigation, Sid Fillery, promoting the course of justice, and what they alleged was a getaway driver, a kind of well-known figure called uh, James Cook. So many cooks around, too many cooks. Now, this does not get to trial. There is now, after that, there are five years, I think three years are actually pre-trial hearing. So nobody can talk about it. It's all pre-trial here. It's all hush-hush. You can't talk about police investigations, of course, of which a lot of this evidence came up. But also, the one supergrass was suspect, mentally unstable, so his dad had, hadn't. And lots of other evidence which had stood up. This is the days when Soak Par, the sort of the distancing between the debrief team and the investigative team, but the supergraph wasn't clearly established. It was in conversation with Dave Cook. Dave Cook maintains he was calling him a lot, but the Cook was calling, the supergrass was calling him a lot. But the police hadn't kept the records for him to prove that. And eventually in trial, the judge decided that there was too much communication with this. And so 
he was his evidence was thrown out and then Fillory was severed and found not guilty because his was the main evidence over the involvement of Fillory in the murder plot. But the trial, the pre-trials went on for another year and a half and what killed it in the end was more and more crates and unused evidence were found. Five Eye gets this wrong. They think that collapsed the trial, the Supercross. Not at all. It severed Fillory, but all the... But there was a problem. The suspects were released from prison, which meant more people, witnesses got a bit wary. But the thing that killed it was after that, five investigations, lots of peripheral investigations, dozens related to it. They, the police could never give full disclosure. And the defendant's argument, which is the powerful thing about police corruption, was that, yes, there's police corruption, and they're corrupt now. And so that queers the pitch for all the evidence. It's very difficult to get safe trial if there's evidence of police corruption at some point, because you argue it's continuing, and also the volume of disclosure made the case. So it collapsed in 2011 without going to all the suspects were found innocent in that evidence. But I will say the police are not looking for any other suspects. And Alistair's feeling of despair then was profound because he knew it will never get to trial. It, you can't, you know, with that volume of in the British criminal you know, justice system, to have a, it's not possible to have a fair trial in those circumstances. Yeah. So by that point, what he wanted was the truth to be told in institutional reform. Peter, if we could move to some of the bigger issues or how they might apply to other places in the world. I mean, what would you say is one potential lesson from this case that other world cities could or should take note of? So I think the biggest lesson that, you know, the press, the fourth estate should remain distinct and critical of the other pillars of state, particularly now, one of the reasons that Leveson happened, just one of them, is an MP, a sitting MP, still around, Chris Bryant, MP for Rhonda, Labour MP. In 2004, a friend of his, uh, I think another MP, had lost his wallet in Soho, right? Now, Soho's part, you know, it's a kind of relaxed, just a fun area, but it also has some red light elements, especially back then. And the first thing this MP knew was the call from the sun, what you were doing in Soho. And then the wallet was returned by the police. So Chris Bryant asked Rebecca Brooks, who was with Andy Coulson, sitting on the select committee of which he was part of the panel, said, do you ever pay police for stories? And Rebecca Brooks said, yes, all the time. Now that is, I think it's impermissible in America. In fact, I know it is because there were some questions of stories they may have paid American officials for, uh, stories about Saddam Hussein and his, when he was imprisoned. And that comes under quite strict military and civil law, and the civil law, you know, the penal code in America. Whereas there was no strong law in this. In fact, there were dozens of trials around whether public officials were guilty of receiving money from the sun and the news of the world. And they all convicted, but all the journalists got off scot-free because the only existing law in 2011-12, 13, when those trials were happening, was misconduct in public office. And understandably, the jury took the view that even they were baited and bettered by journalists, it was the officials who should be sent to prison for misconduct in public office. We now have a firmer law since then, came into force, I think, after these crimes came into force about 2011, the Bribery Act. So when money goes to public officials, you can see this now with conservative donation, uh, that is bad. If the people who should be, as we do on Barlow Times, investigating those donations to public figures or payments are the press themselves, it's really bad. Because News of the World has got to remember wasn't just a salacious gossip rag with, you know, had been for 100 years. It was the biggest English selling language newspaper in the world. One of the oldest in the UK, it was the most profitable uh, sign. And it, by going down this route of corrupting public officials, the media became part of the state it was supposed to criticize. And therefore that healthy role of the free press, which I completely believe in, I don't believe, well, I, I believe it should be a feral press. But Murdoch did not run a feral wild press, ran a tightly controlled, a bit like the Dark Riders of Sauron, to get back to Lord of the Rings analogies, team of Nazgul who would target enemies, perceived enemies of his friends like Blair or Thatcher for political purposes. It wasn't for the benefit of the public, it was for private benefit and private control. And I would say that's the biggest reasons, back to the story, you know, why, if you haven't heard the story, why, ask yourself why, why this continued injustice, why the reasons for uh, Daniel's murder not come out. We know, that can't, we pretty well know who the suspects are who've done it. It's, it's why did it? 
and, and why did they get away with it? And one of the reasons they got away is right at the get-go, the press were compromised. They hear about this murder. They know people have got away with murder. And what do they think? First thing the press do, let's hire the suspects. The panel report makes a huge error here. Apropos of the evidence, particularly of David Gray, who was close to Daniel. He's got a young assistant, if you like, you know, Robin to his Batman, but his closest associate in some investigations. He produced a book four or five years ago saying, you know, Daniel was selling a story of police corruption source from this detective, D.S. Taffy Holmes, who come out of the Brinks Matt inquiry, who also dies this year under of suspicious circumstances of suicide. And he says that's what they, they were saying to the press, that was the whole thing was about. And then he dies, right? Obvious inference there. The panel and says, why didn't he come forward for, for earlier? Well, because he knew the investigation was corrupt. He came for the panel. The other one they say is if there was a journalist who was working on a story with Daniel. When he gets murdered, surely they'll come forward with their story. Now, look, that does, <laughs> that's a big <laughs> overestimation of journalists. My God, you know, your, your main source of the story is dead, so you're going to tell the story. Well, I think they would have needed the evidence. I think the murder was about the evidence. That's my personal. And I can tell you a personal story of why this matters. There is, I won't name him, a photographer who was one of the first people on the scene photographing the murder scene. Flash forward to God, you know, 30 years later, 2016, I'm working on the podcast. And I say, well, would you come on the podcast? Just talk about what happened, what it was like. So, oh no, don't want to put my head above the power. <laughs> 30 years later, people are still scared. That speaks to the venality of journalism, you know, in terms of giving them money, taking their illicit information from pre police gazette or phone hacking or you know getting into police records searches on the police computer and the cowardice that you know, one you know the time comes up not enough people will stand up and talk mainly i suppose because they're scared that that's a big lesson to take you back to something that you said a couple of moments ago about people there with their cup of cocoa opening up their copy of the news of the world and I wonder, you know, people clearly liked that kind of salacious gossip, the big exposés of David Meller and, you know, mm. and, and others. Do you sense that they would have cared still if they knew about the process, often illegal, that journalists went through in order to get that story? And if they don't care, what does that tell you about either the readers of that particular paper, which is perhaps a dangerous thing to get into, but just general consumers of media anyway if they just don't give a shit oh i think you need an informed consumer and the evidence is of course you know when the hacking of millie dowler they ran a lot of stories on millie dowler and murdered school girls it's a big theme so um you know it was just a major selling point when the public discovered how they got this story, they were if you realize how your chicken was manufactured if you really knew the processes of chicken factory and it is, there is a salacious side to the British public. The, I, tell, I know News of the World journalists, they always were very, well, A, careful to launder the illicit information. It's always a source or somebody's father. And back in the mini dialer days, they do actually mention voicemails. That's why that became so crucial during the court, because in the yeah. first version of the story is they'd obviously be listening to voicemails, and we now know Glenn Mulcair hacked a voicemail, and he's admitted that, and there's plenty of records of that. But they are, you know, obviously fascinated by the semi side, but the News of the World journalists always put on the front foot, we're for the underdogs. In fact, News of the World, like during Hillsborough, was much, much better. Liverpool right. fans, they're much more on their side. It was very racist, incredibly homophobic. I mean, racist towards black people. It became Islamophobic later. That was the new thing. But it always, you know, Murdoch's very good at that. He's very good at saying, I'm the underdog. I'm Australian against the monarchy. And I'm on the side. He's, he has enough of that crusading. He's actually said a newspaper, as long as it does the right thing, be a powerful force for good. This is 68, 69, but it's buying uh, news of the world. Uh, but it can be, become a force for evil if it doesn't tell the truth. But I think, I think the, po the, the point, though, sorry to interrupt, Peter, but the no, point is, is that, you know, you, you said you know, there was the outrage and we, you know, us here in the UK remember the Millie Dowler when the information came out about that. And that's what blew the whole thing open, really. But here we are, you know, in 2021, 12 years on from the first lapse, et cetera, et cetera. A couple of the biggest selling newspapers are still owned by Murdoch. Mm. He's got a, a huge broadcasting empire. 
you've got a very successful podcast, which exposes some of the mm. machinations that go on behind the scenes. But there hasn't arguably any overall change. Well, that, I think it's agree? No, I, do. I wouldn't quite agree. I think, you see, when the paper started fate in the 90s, partly online copies, they started losing money. They were great money earners. The Sun now loses a lot of money, partly to the ongoing phone hacking. But back in the day, they begin to lose money in the 90s and they went for celebrity. That's yeah. when Piers Morgan becomes the celebrity columnist of The Sun and goes on to edit News of the World and then the Mirror Group. And that is when now, and you see him talking about Meghan Markle, princess of whatever county she's a princess of, the same way. And celebrity, Princess Diana, became the new, and privacy intrusion became the new goal. Yeah. And I think there was a thing in British society, this whole man, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, big brother, the whole fascination. I do think that was a cultural phenomenon. I think it was cruel. And I think it you know, didn't kill her directly, but the appetite for it certainly drove Diana to his death. And various other people we know have been driven to mental illness, distraction. And I think that is dying down a bit. I think fame doesn't mean what it used to be. We're all on YouTube, we're all famous in our lunchtimes, old camera, we've got social media. And just practically, phone hacking doesn't happen anymore. It's been established. I mean, nobody uses that voice, but you know, email hacking is sanctions, paying cops that doesn't happen. And they have turned, and privacy, actually privacy more, privacy was the new law that, rather than defamation that came with these big payouts after phone hacking. And they keep on going on, and people are very wary. They understand as I think Article 7 of Human Rights, the privacy is a right. Even, even famous people have the right to privacy. And without privacy, you are on the road to totalitarianism. You know, let me just say 26 of the new Labour cabinet and their spads were hacked by News of the World. So that's massive Stasi-like surveillance of an elected democratic government, whether you like them or not. Meanwhile, if you cannot know, you know, you think your parents betrayed you, this happened to Charlotte Church, and, you know, her private secrets, she thought her mama betrayed her, all the things, you know, and they all came out. They couldn't trust them. Gaza happened to Paul Gascoigne. Turned out nobody betrayed him. They've hacked his voicemail, or rather, the voicemails he left on friends' phone. That we do understand that. And I think you see there's a change in how the tabloid press, their salacious, is much more political. It's much more, let's, let's target the government because they're paying us 120 million a year for our advertising for the coronavirus. They will give us access. They will not regulate us. And then they play the woke wars. You know, they target minorities, not an individual, but Muslims, trans people, you know, travelers. They've kind of gone to something less targeted, personally targeted. I mean, maybe just as toxic, don't get me wrong. Yeah. So I think there is a kind of change. But the thing is, bad guys, it's like an arms race. The bad guys will come up. And I just, on that arms racing, I remember sitting in the phone hacking trial. And when I got, I remember thinking, oh, what is somebody's looking at this? Not as a warning, but as an instruction. Look how successful murder was by hacking. I wonder if we should do the same. I do notice, and I have done quite a bit of work on this, the Cambridge Analytics set up in 2013 by Steve Bannon, Trump's, soon to be Trump's campaign manager, which hacked 75 million Facebook profiles, and then used that to power up a very effective machine, which helped Trump get victory, and though others deny it, was effective in the Brexit vote. That's always unfortunate. You're constantly in a race against the malign innovations of the bad guys. People with malign innovations and intentions to subvert the will of people and, you know, really twist things to their own advantage. This probably sounds like a silly question at this point, but I mean, can we handle the social consequences of anything getting cleaned up? Um, if you mean... Is the state so reliant on this kind of corruption? Um, I'd say at least when it comes to the press, the not doing it is worse. And I have a living vivid example of that. Boris Johnson dismissed phone hacking. He was quite close to Rebecca Brooks, not so close to the right-wing press, in 2010-11 as left-wing codswallop. He apologised. But he and Michael Gove were creations of our press. You know, Telegraph columnist, Boris Johnson, editor the Spectator, and... They rise and, you know, wanted to reject the Levison findings, wanted to stop, you know, any further investigations. They do the press favors, press do them a favor. Michael Gove closed the murder. But in a way, two most powerful men in the British government, in British politics, come out of this school 
of criminal media nexus, as Gordon Brown called and they cover up for their mates and they get promoted by their mates. Where's this led as well? You could say electoral success, 80, but on a, as he, the phrase he's used, an inverted pyramid of piff. The lies that people like people Oborn and conservative writer or Peter Saranovich have documented Boris Johnson exceed any in modern history and probably in the history of British political scene. And the problem with lies is they always collapse. They can run and run and run, they support them. But at some point, reality does come home. At some point, it matters if that's a cup of green tea or a cup of polonia, you know. And I think the consequences of not cleaning this up are already becoming apparent in immediate crises of, you know, turkey farmers, petrol pumps, you know, chicken merchants, you know, pig slaughterers, fishing, retail, hospitality, haulage, I could go on and on and on because they're not addressing it because they've lied about it. Because they've lied about it, they can't address it. And that will come to a crunch. It may not be a huge car crash, it may be a slow motion car crash. Certainly more than the punch in the British economy. And I think you see this in America. We're midway through that. Trump didn't win. And he's Bannon and Trump are staring up a whole big lie. They may get away with it. They may not. If they get away with it, then there will be huge consequences, negative consequences for America. Meanwhile, the part the victory in the last presidential election last year makes a big difference. They have been stalled. So the stakes are too high to think we need this worm in our system. I think it's always there, but it has spread lies, misinformation, thanks to, you know, have become uh, like the most, the biggest threat to Western democracy, bigger than I think the Cold War. So last of all, uh, Peter, if we can, I mean, We've talked about, you know, the faith that we have or don't have in our institutions and the, you know, and the kind of relationship with the institutions have with the press. Mm. But to bring it back to this case, and in particular, what's happened both in the US over the last year or so with Black Lives Matter and here most recently with um, uh, the murder of Sarah Everard, which for listeners who aren't in the UK was uh, was uh, kidnapped and then murdered by a serving police officer. And I just wonder whether in many countries at a really important level, so you've got government corruption and or whatever you want to talk, you know, how you've just framed it, but the everyday kind of work of the police, which is to keep us safe, mm. our faith in that, which is arguably more important than our faith in governments, is at mm. such a low point. And I, I really worry about that, that we don't have faith in the people that are here, our first line of defence when we are in trouble, when we are burgled, when we are mugged and things like that. And that's a really difficult thing for whether it's here in the UK or in the US for people to either change or get their heads around that we don't even have faith sometimes in our police force. So I was very lucky that the first ever TV series I did in to uh, John Alderson, who was the founder, Devon Cornwall Police, used to be in the UN, of community policing. Not to be confused with John Alderton, who was a slightly more hardline figure for Manchester. John Alderton, he was my advisor for three to four years. Saintly man, amazing man. Uh, and he always pointed out to me, a constable is a member of the public. The mm-hmm. idea of the constabulary is that we come forward doing hue and cry, that, and it's, and it's partly in the sheriff and the deputy system in the US. We are policing ourselves, right? I do think there are massive improvements to that in the British public. Partly because I must say, since my memory of the 80s, police are generally much better. <laughs> they're much, they're not old schools of thugs, though there are too many of those around, especially the presence of women in the force. When I went out with Somerset and Avon, uh, that Black Friday, I was just amazed, especially the inspector level, had really smart inspectors, 50 year old. They deal with people in mental health crisis. I've seen police intervene. Generally, the skill sets of the police are much higher. And these institutional problems are institutional problems. I mean, they manifest themselves. You know, Cousins was a hire. He was in diplomatic protection. He had farms. Why on earth? He was known as the rapist in his watch app. Why on earth their vetting procedures? But generally, the levels of trust compared to the 80s, the black community in London, please, are just... And I think there's a huge disappointment, there's a huge cutting of police resources. I mean, that, you know, cousins partly played to that. A lot of women's safety issues are about this failure to vet, the macho culture in the Met, but also the lack of presence of police officers in a time of crisis. You know, you just never see them. 
um, which was and that idea of community policing, which John Alderson pioneered in the uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, and there's the answer. It's like I always feel social media is the same. You know, why hasn't Twitter banned this person? Why don't we regulate ourselves? Why don't we moderate ourselves? There is enough communication between the various police forces and their commands and the public. I think the problem specifically is the Met, which is partly run from the Home Office, partly a tool of national power. And I think you see that in other in American cities, and there's some city police forces have reformed, some have historically been bad with corruption, like NYPD, LAPD, they've cleaned up their act. You know, some police officers have been brilliant during Black Lives Matters, ICE and other laws have been awful. And this is where the citizen, especially in America where you elect them, but this is where we have some control. A very thought-provoking discussion, Peter. We really appreciate coming on to talk not only about the podcast, but some really big issues. So, uh, Peter Jiggs, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for those excellent questions which drew out those answers. Thanks, Peter. Okay, we're back, Kev. There are a number of documentaries and many newspaper and online articles over the years about Daniel Morgan's murder. But Peter Jukes' podcast and the subsequent book with Alistair Morgan are about as thorough and excellent a piece of investigative journalism as you're about to get on this case. And sadly, the fight for justice continues for Alistair and the Morgan family, although the panel report did at least expose the Metropolitan Police for some of the practices that went on over the years. Yeah, so here's my bizarre, and I hasten to add, extremely loose connection to this story. Mm. I lived for a number of years in a house right next door to the pub in South London where Daniel Morgan was killed in the rear car park. Uh, This was about five years after the murder, but even all those years later, it was a subject that actually would come up often among the locals. Oh, yeah. Well, what would you say the local sentiment about the case was by that time? And do you think the podcast has benefited the case? It was an extremely brutal killing and people knew it was not an open and shut case by any means. Mm. So, you know, the podcast certainly brought a lot of attention back to the case, especially as the panel report that has been discussed in the podcast was still carrying out its investigation when the podcast first aired. Mm-hmm. Anyway, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, I actually also worked on the Police Gazette newspaper at the Metropolitan Police in the early 1990s. So anyway, there you go. Transparency is everything. There we are. All right. Well, we wish Peter and the Morgan family the best of luck with their continuing efforts to bring the perpetrators to justice and also to raise awareness about institutional corruption. Yeah. So please take a look at Peter's work at Byline Times too. He and his team of journalists are really raising the level of debate on a wide array of issues in politics and society. Anyway, righty-ho, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Metapod featuring uh, Theo and Juliet of Apologies Accepted. We will. And not long thereafter, Mr. May, we've got a very Uh, special episode mm -hmm. celebrating our first full year of shows. And in true meta fashion, it will feature us as the guests and the hosts. (laughs) (laughs) So look out, everyone. Look out, people. Okay. I'm actually a little bit scared already, Wendy. You should be. Okay. (laughs) All right. Farewell, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. 